Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 342. It's titled, Is Another Great Inflation Coming I recently got an email from a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, and he said he had just gone shopping for some facial tissues, Kleenex, and saw pricing had been raised at the national retailer by over 20% on single packages and 33% on four packs. He mentioned he had sold to big box stores all his career and knew how difficult it is to get a price increase that big at a store. This concerned him because he saw it as another signal that consumer costs are headed up. He mentioned last time he saw price increases like he's seeing anecdotally was in mid-2008. He's also seeing it in his professional life as supply chains have struggled with shortages and suppliers are increasing prices. The business surveys that were done around the world, known as PMI data, the prices paid subcomponents are at the highest levels they have been since 2008. In this episode, we're going to take a look at is a great inflation coming? An inflation like we saw around the world from the late 1960s to the early 1980s. What would cause that? And what should we do about it from an investment standpoint? What assets can we own to survive a great inflation? Now, as a review, inflation measures the rise in prices over time. The more the overall prices of food, housing, clothes, health care, and other goods and services increase, the greater the rate of inflation. Government statistical agencies, such as the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics in the U.S., measure inflation by calculating how the prices of items that are included in a reference basket change from one period to the next. In the U.S., the reference basket used to calculate the U.S. Consumer Price Index has over 200 categories of goods and services purchased by households and businesses, and they're divided into eight major groups, food and beverages, housing, apparel, transportation, medical care, recreation, education, and communication. There's some judgment when it comes to measuring inflation, and the pandemic has made that measurement more difficult. In countries such as those in Europe where the lockdowns were more restrictive, it was more difficult for statisticians to assess how much prices fell during the lockdown period because the price checkers were stuck at home. In the U.S., where the lockdowns were less severe, U.S. statisticians the work for the BLS were able to get out more. And this actually shows up in the inflation numbers because the price of airfare, for example, fell more in the U.S. because the statisticians were able to capture it more. 
Whereas in Europe, a lot more category of prices were imputed rather than checked physically. That means one year later, the U.S. could show a larger inflation rate because it's being compared to prices a year ago that had fallen further than other countries, simply based on how the prices a year ago were determined. Were they checked in the stores or were they imputed based on price trends? Another thing that impacts inflation is the weight of the goods and services within the reference baskets. Those consumption habits might have changed during the lockdown, and so the weights might actually be off. In episode 338, we looked at what causes inflation, and it comes down to too much money chasing too few goods and services. That leads to capacity constraints for producing those goods and services. There could be labor shortages, higher wages paid, commodity prices can increase. We're seeing a semiconductor shortage around the world, and that's driving up prices of goods and services. When we think about too much money chasing too few goods and services, we need the money supply to increase, the amount of money out there. The primary way money supply increases is through bank lending. As banks make loans, that creates new money. The second way money is created, and the primary way it's been created significantly over the past year, is rising government budget deficits that are funded by central banks, either directly or through government bond purchases. That has definitely occurred as central banks stepped in and purchased government-issued bonds, such as U.S. Treasury bonds, at the same time governments were running double-digit type deficits, and that led to a large jump in the money supply. In the months ahead, we will see rising inflation, higher inflation levels, more than we have seen in a number of years. And it'll come from a high demand for goods and services. There's pent-up demand. And many businesses are still increasing capacity because they cut back significantly. Take rental car companies, for example. Rental car prices fell 20% last year. And rental car companies cut back their fleets, the number of cars that they had. Now, individuals are wanting to travel again. There just aren't enough rental cars. That has been compounded by the semiconductor shortage because then rental car companies are having trouble buying new cars to replace their fleet. So now rental car prices are 25% above what they were prior to the pandemic. So we can see that pent-up demand driving up the price of goods and services. At the same time, we could see less demand for certain items that became very popular during the pandemic lockdowns that might not increase in price as much or even fall in price. Perhaps some areas of groceries as households eat out more. In the current bout of inflation, we're seeing commodity prices rise. A year ago, oil futures were priced negative. They had a negative contract price. Now, a barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude sells for $64 a barrel. That certainly increases the rate of inflation. For inflation to continue to increase, though, we need continual commodity price increases. And those are not necessarily assured. The other thing that we would need for sustained inflation that we're not seeing now is more lending by banks. Loans and leases for U.S. banks have actually fallen in the past year, partially due to a big jump in lending a year ago as businesses pulled down their lines of credit 
in the early months of the pandemic. But if we just look over the trends over the last few months, we're not seeing a big jump in bank loans. When there is a large increase in bank loan growth, that has been associated with higher rates of inflation. It's not happening yet. The inflation that we're seeing is coming from government spending, stimulus measures, and from pent-up demand as the global economy reopens. Let's look at the great inflation from the late 1960s into the early 1980s. Capital Economics, which is an economic research firm that I subscribe to, issued a very well-done report on comparing the current inflation environment to the 1970s. And one of the things that they pointed out was the 1970s was the first and the last time that we've seen high, sustained, peacetime inflation. They included a chart that went back to the 1200s compiled by the Bank of England and Capital Economics. It showed periods where inflation increased happened during wars, Napoleonic Wars, World War I, World War II. There was a relative period of great inflation, sustained period from 1500 to 1650. But then the average yearly inflation rate was only 1.2%. So the 70s were different. It was unique. It hadn't happened before. What caused it? And could it be repeated? What caused that great inflation was exactly the things that we talked about that causes inflation. The U.S. and other countries increased the amount of their spending in the late 60s as part of great society social programs, as well as the Vietnam War. The budget deficit widened. So you had a significant budget deficit. There were capacity constraints. One of the differences back in the late 1960s up until 1971 is U.S. dollar was pegged to gold. And as a result, central banks had to take action to keep that peg and the stability in the currency in check. As the budget deficit increased, the money supply grew. Investors wanted to sell dollars because they were fearful of a devaluation in U.S. dollars. To prevent that, the Federal Reserve stepped in and started buying dollars. They bought dollars by creating money out of thin air, like central banks do. That created additional money. Now, the Federal Reserve tried to limit the impact of that by also selling bonds in a process known as sterilization. But it wasn't effective. The money supply definitely increased, and the pressure on the currency continued up until President Nixon announced that the dollar would float freely relative to gold and relative to other currencies. The massive spending programs and the budget deficit led to capacity constraints. The economy was growing faster than the ability of the workforce to provide goods and services. That's the situation we have today. Large deficits, some capacity constraints, potentially some labor shortages. Another trend that was occurring in the 70s is something called the dependency ratio. The number of those of working age population relative to the rest of the population. In the late 60s, early 70s, there was still a large cohort of baby boomers and Gen X that weren't in the workforce. 
And so the dependency ratio was high because there was a lot more not working versus working. Then the dependency ratio dropped throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, where there were more workers and that helped contribute to lower levels of inflation. Now, that dependency ratio is picking up in some countries, in Europe, U.S., and China. But that doesn't necessarily mean inflation is coming because of that, because we have to look at it globally. And the global dependency ratio, if we incorporate workers from emerging markets, is fairly stable. It's not increasing that dramatically. There are some differences, though, between the 1970s and today that suggest maybe a great inflation isn't coming. First off, unions were much more powerful in the early 1970s. They had greater bargaining power to increase wages. They were more willing to go on strike and other work stoppages. We don't see that today. In addition, there was much less globalization and trade back in the early 70s. Trade accounted for less than a quarter of economic output or GDP around the world compared to trade comprising about half of GDP today. Because of that, there's always the threat that companies will move their production overseas where wages are lower. Another difference between today and back then is there's greater potential for productivity increases due to technology, automation, robotics. So more globalization, less unionization, potentially more productivity increases due to technology could reduce some of the inflationary pressures. This increase in the coming months could be temporary, a function of just the economy reopening. The other big difference that capital economics points out between the 1970s and today is central banks were less willing to raise interest rates, their policy rate to combat inflation and reduce demand. They didn't want to do it. It wasn't until Paul Volcker in the early 1980s dramatically increased the Fed funds rate that inflation was brought in check. And one of the reasons that they were unwilling to do that is they didn't think it would necessarily work because of organized labor, that if they just raise rates, that would lead to higher debt service cost and unions and workers would demand higher wages and offset the impact. The other concern was there was an anchoring that households expected high inflation and that raising rates wouldn't necessarily change that. It would take too long. There was the concern that by raising rates, unemployment would increase. One of the concerns is central banks might not be willing to raise policy rates today if inflation takes hold. Will they have the political will to do that? Central banks have changed in that they're more concerned about societal inequalities, full employment for all workers. Central banks have suggested that they're willing to let inflation run higher until more workers are back to work, to run above the target so that the average inflation amount is in line with the target. But they're willing to let the economy run hot. And the question is, will they be willing to take away the punch bowl, which is the euphemism for central banks raising policy rates, trying to reduce demand? We don't know. But there was definitely a difference back in the 70s. It wasn't so much an unwillingness. They just didn't think it would work. 
to raise interest rates, or some didn't. But it turns out that actually does work. Raising policy rates to reduce demand can dampen inflation. So it's more a willingness to do it rather than whether it will be effective or not. The bottom line is inflation is picking up due to pent-up demand, an increase of money supply based on government actions, commodity price increases. It's not a given that this will morph into a 1970s great inflation. We'll have to see on that front and whether central banks will take actions to reduce inflation. In the meantime, we have to decide, well, what to own from an investment standpoint. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The best hedge to protect against inflation are inflation-indexed bonds. In the U.S., they're Treasury Inflation Protection Securities or Series I savings bonds. Their returns are directly linked to inflation. Mathematically, as inflation comes in, consumer price index, the bond returns are adjusted for that. Series I savings bonds is a great investment. Right now, if you buy a Series I savings bond, it will pay an interest rate of 3.54% for the next six months. 
because the consumer price index increased. Treasury inflation protection securities have a much lower yield. The 10-year yield on the Treasury Inflation Protection Security, or TIP, is negative 0.9%, which means as an investor, you would earn less than inflation. You still get the inflation adjustment, but your starting amount is less. The yield is zero for 30-year Treasury Inflation Protection Securities. So if you bought an individual bond and held it, held it for 30 years, you would be protected against inflation. You just wouldn't get a real yield a yield after inflation because it's effectively zero. On the Money for the Rest of Us website, there's a free investment guide, a complete guide to investing in tips and I-bonds, and you can learn all about that. There's an exchange-traded fund that's called the Quadratic Interest Rate Volatility and Inflation Hedge ETF. IVOL is the ticker. That also owns tips, but also uses some option strategies to protect against changes in interest rates. There's also a guide on the Money for the Rest of Us website that reviews that particular ETF, and all these guides I'll link to in the show notes. But the first category of inflation protection is assets where there's a direct link between inflation and the asset's return, principally inflation index bonds. The next category are non-cash flow generating assets that have historically outperformed inflation due to supply constraints. We discussed some of those in episode 336, Own What is Real. Gold, other commodities, Bitcoin. They have outperformed inflation, but not every year, and there's not a direct link. In addition, there's problems with owning commodities because you can't own an oil tanker. You can't buy a barrel of oil. You have to purchase oil futures. And the return of oil futures and other commodity futures depends on whether the commodity will increase in price more than what is already priced into the futures contract. In other words, inflation needs to be higher than what investors already expect. And as those commodity futures mature and new ones are bought, there is the potential to be losing money every time that futures contract is rolled over. That's called negative roll yield. There's a guide on the Money for the Rest of Us website that goes into great detail on roll yield and some of the challenges with commodity futures from that front. That's not to discourage you from owning commodity futures, but we have to recognize that there's that element you don't have that with gold if you own gold coins or an exchange traded fund that owns actual gold bullion. But these type of assets can include antiques, art, there's a limited supply, there is no cash flow, and they have outperformed inflation historically. There's no guarantee that they will going forward. The next category of inflation protection is assets whose cash flow can grow as inflation increases. Real estate, including real estate investment trust, because real estate owners can raise the rent to keep up with inflation. Stocks, because stocks are issued by businesses that can raise prices as inflation increases. Stocks do better when inflation is lower. If we look at the performance of the S&P 500 index, going back to 1952 through the end of the first quarter of 2021, when the consumer price index 
is one percentage points more than its five-year average, stocks have actually lost money on an annual basis, negative 1.5%. Longer term, stocks have outperformed, but when inflation picks up and it's greater than the five-year average, stocks have actually lost money. When inflation is less than the five-year average, stocks have gained 13.9% per annum. So while we recognize that stocks can be good inflation hedges, not necessarily right away, particularly if the inflation is unexpected or it, it spikes. Under that scenario, stocks have actually lost money. There was an interesting study that, that I'll link to by Aaron Brask Capital, where they looked at dividends, stock dividends, the portion of the profits that companies pay, have grown faster than inflation. They've kept up with inflation. There's a fairly tight correlation over the long term. We've seen the same thing with REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust. In most periods, going back to the early 1970s, REITs' dividend growth rate has exceeded the consumer price index. The one major exception was back in 2008 and 9 when REITs sold off in the great financial crisis and the most recent period when we've also seen REITs decline in 2020. Back in 2008 and 2020, because there was an economic crisis, REITs cut their dividends because they have to pay out most of their profits in dividends. And because profits had fallen due to vacancies or non-payment of rent, dividends were cut. But if you assume that real estate will bounce back, and it has been, that workers will return to offices, which they will. I mean, there'll be an adjustment in terms of flexible work schedules, but offices are just one component of REITs. There's all different types of REITs. And over the long term, their dividends have grown faster than inflation. And so that's why REITs can be a, a solid inflation hedge. There's also a free guide to equity REIT investing on the Money for the Rest of Us website. Dividend-paying stocks can be a solid inflation hedge. If we look at, and this is data from Ned Davis Research that shows the performance of U.S. stocks from 1973 through the end of April, dividend growers and companies that just start to issue dividends have returned 10.6% annualized. All dividend-paying stocks have returned 9.5% annualized. Those that cut their dividend only return negative 0.8%, and non-dividend-paying stocks return 4.8%. So dividend growers and all dividend-paying stocks outperformed the overall stock market, which returned 8.1% annualized. That suggests we should own dividend-paying stocks and stocks of companies that are growing their dividend. But we also have to recognize that sometimes there's a premium for that. Right now, the forward price-to-earnings ratio for S&P 500 dividend growers is 22.9. It's three standard deviations above its average going back to 1984, which is about 14 and a half. So they're very, very expensive, as expensive as they've ever been since 1984, because people want to own these type of companies. If we just look at high dividend stocks, so, so those that aren't necessarily growing their dividends in a rapid fashion, that price-to-earnings ratio is 17. 
It's about one and a half standard deviations above its average of 12 and a half. So they're expensive too, but not as expensive as the dividends growers. But dividend paying stocks have outperformed inflation. One of the other things about stocks is, are they able to raise prices and pass those price increases on to consumers? James McIntosh, in a piece in the Wall Street Journal this week, pointed out that there's a premium that companies that can easily raise prices in the face of inflation sell for more. But in a high inflationary period, all companies can increase their prices. And as a result, during much of the higher inflation periods, that the, the value stocks tend to do better, those that typically might have trouble raising their prices. There's a new ETF that just came out, the Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF, and it invests in companies they believe will do well, whether there will be high inflation or not, but if there is, they're able to adapt to that. The ETF's fairly concentrated. It is fairly new, but it is another way to invest in stocks, protect against inflation. Now, what about bonds? They've not necessarily done the best when it comes to inflation. A month or so ago, I did an episode on why do we own bonds? We own bonds to generate income, but also to protect against capital losses and deflation. Inflation is not a given, high inflation. Longer term, we will get inflation. But a period of high inflation at great inflation is not guaranteed. And owning some bonds to protect against deflation, falling prices, is appropriate. Owning bonds to protect against market losses, to conserve some capital, to take advantage of opportunities, makes sense. Ideally, and I do this in my portfolio and on the Money for the Rest of Us Plus model portfolios, is we have bond funds that have a higher yield, hopefully higher than inflation, but they're not as interest rate sensitive. They have a lower duration so that if interest rates increase, it will not fall as much as the overall bond market. Generally speaking, having most of your portfolio in bonds during a period of high inflation won't work out so well. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't own any bonds. At the end of the day, we need to own a variety of asset classes to protect against inflation, but also for deflation. I call it an asset garden approach, just a sheer variety. So own some assets that have a direct link to inflation. Perhaps some Series I savings bonds. Perhaps an individual Treasury Inflation Protection Security. Own some assets that don't have cash flow, that are more speculative but have historically outpaced inflation. Gold, cryptocurrency maybe commodity futures. Own assets whose cash flow can grow as inflation picks up. Stocks, real estate investment trust, dividend-paying stocks. And own some assets that just yield more than inflation. I own preferred stock. I have closed-end funds that use leverage that are invested in bonds and have a yield that's greater than inflation. My view is once we get through this period, of base effects where we're comparing prices relative to pandemic era prices from a year ago, that as some of these capacity constraints get relieved, that inflation will stabilize at its historical level. 
2 to 3%, that we're not going to get a sustained period of high inflation. But we might. And because we might, we should have some assets, like I discussed in this episode, that protect against that. That's episode 342. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, there's two ways I can help with that. First, consider signing up for my Insider's Guide email newsletter. It's where I'll share the links to that week's podcast episode, an essay on money, investing, and the economy, and other valuable content. If you subscribe to the Insider's Guide, you'll get my 10-question guide to master successful investing. This is a summary of the key points of my book by the same title. You can get that summary as well as subscribe to the Insider's Guide email newsletter by going to moneyfortherestofus.com. A second way I can help with your investing is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Plus membership gives you essential portfolio tools, training, and a community to invest with confidence and achieve your financial goals. Money for the Rest of Us Plus serves as a voice of reason and calm amidst the market chaos. You'll get access to a proven investment approach, expert portfolio insights, delivered in a clear and concise style you can understand. Plus, membership includes global multi-asset class portfolio examples, a monthly investment conditions and strategy report to help you understand what is going on and keep your emotions in check, an exclusive Plus member-only podcast, best-in-class video lessons, portfolio building tools and templates, and access to my portfolio holdings and trades. You can learn more about Money for the Rest of Us Plus at moneyfortherestofus.com, and we'd love to have you as a member and help you as you manage your investments through these uncertain times. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.